A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 105, The Triumph of Orthodoxy. Across the last two episodes, we've explored most of the 13-year reign of Theophilus. At home and abroad, he was constantly active. He rebuilt the palace, bedecked the throne room in gold, and sent ambassadors out across Europe. On the Eastern Front, he twice raided the Caliphate, only to suffer severe reprisals. The sack of Amorium, though, was an event that obscured all others. Back in the capital, an air of doom descended as the young emperor hobbled back to the palace. Four years later, Theophilus passed away, and several historians seek a connection claiming that the emperor became ill and depressed and never recovered. There's no testimony to this story, though, so it's better to view the emperor's last few years as simply a continuation of the administration we've seen so far. To that point, the Vasilev's last few years seem just as active as ever. First, he had to deal with the fallout from the sack of Amorium. This meant sending men to negotiate with the caliph for peace and a return of the many imprisoned officers. And second, it meant dealing with Theophobus and the Kuramites, currently in revolt at the city of Sinope in central Anatolia. Fortunately, Theophobus had no interest in rebellion. He had been swept along by his disgruntled troops, but secretly communicated with the emperor to bring about a settlement. The Kuramites were once again dispersed amongst the existing themes, and many of them were sent to the borderlands, where they were particularly effective at counterattacking Arab raids. Their success helped Theophilus finally wring a ceasefire out of Motasim in 841. It was during this period that the emperor attempted to find solutions to the empire's inferiority to Arab might. Embassies went out to the Franks and the Umayyads in Spain, as I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, but he also seems to have given his entire army a pay rise. Nailing down exactly when and how much this was is difficult. 
Warren Treadgold suggests that it was the desertions you heard about last episode that convinced the Emperor that better paid troops would have stood and fought rather than flee the Battle of Anzen. It's plausible but not necessarily accurate. All we can say is that the pay of troops across the Empire began to improve and that Theophilus was certainly involved in this decision. His overflowing treasury could now sustain such an increase. Apparently, troops received an extra gold coin for every year they served up until their sixth year. So the maximum a regular soldier could receive was six nomisma per annum. Now, that was to be doubled, so men could get up to 12 coins a year before their salary was capped. Six gold coins was the cost of a horse, so this was a significant increase. We should remember, though, that pay doesn't seem to have been consistent. Many troops didn't receive an annual salary, only bonuses and campaign pay. Others were paid every few years, and whether the sums were always accurate, we don't know. This is significant, though, not only as a sign of the recovery of the empire, but also because, according to several historians, this better pay will put an end to the series of military revolts that some trace all the way back to Focus and Maurice. The emperor was also part of a process that's been going on for most of this century, and that's the division of the themes into smaller, better defended units of territory. We've already talked about Paphlagonia and Chaldea, which were broken off from the Armenia Khan. Better to defend the border, in Chaldea's case, and better to defend against Rus raiders over in Paphlagonia. Along with these, new border districts were developed, called Klisura, which means mountain passes. This way, an independent unit of troops could be established right on the spot where Arab raids would arrive, and hopefully deter them. The Klisura of Chasianum was placed opposite the Pass of Melitene. The Klisura of Cappadocia defended the Pass of Adata. And the Klisura of Seleucia was set up near the Cilician Gates. I've posted a map with this week's episode, which hopefully will demonstrate most of these changes. Themes for Dyrrhachium in the Balkans and Cherson in the Crimea were also put in place around this time. I don't think we can credit Theophilus personally for these innovations, but he would certainly have approved and funded the plans, and we'll talk more about them at the end of the century. By late 841, it was clear to everyone in the palace that Theophilus was dying. The cause was apparently dysentery, and no foul play was suspected. The emperor now had a two-year-old son called Michael, who he'd crowned emperor, and he was determined to prepare the way for his succession. The two most likely candidates to seize the throne were neutralised. Alexius Musel, the Caesar, had returned from Sicily and wisely begged to be relieved of his title and allowed to retire, which he was. Theophobus, on the other hand, was lured to the palace and imprisoned. 
It's not clear if the emperor gave the order, or someone else took the initiative, but the general was found dead in his cell soon after. Theophilus called on his palace officials and other notables from across the city to gather. He told them that he was putting his son under the care of a regency council until he came of age. In the meantime, his wife Theodora would rule with the help of Theoctistos, the eunuch, and some other members of her family. He asked them to all swear their loyalty to this new arrangement. With everything settled, the emperor lay back on his sickbed and waited. In January 842, the reaper called, and Theophilus answered. He was 29 years old and had ruled the empire for 13 years. As I've made clear throughout the narrative, Theophilus seems like a capable and active emperor. Had he gone on living, his legacy would have been very different. Instead, the defeat at Amorium and the actions of his wife following his death cemented him in history as a tyrant and a failure. To explain this, let's remember the mood at the time. The defeat at Amorium was not nearly as damaging as the one at Pliska 30 years earlier, but to contemporaries it felt just as bad, possibly worse, because the Arabs were a real threat to the empire's existence, where the Bulgars weren't. As you know, the shock of Pliska had prompted return to iconoclasm to appease the army. Now that ideology had been undermined, and the army which supported it had been decapitated. The commanders of the Tachmata and the Anatolikon, the supposed hotbeds of iconoclasm, were all absent, either in the next life or at Samara with the Caliph. Theodora would move, as Irene had done before her, to restore the icons. The successful change of policy meant Theophilus would end up on the wrong side of history. Theodora was in her late twenties. She was a Paphlagonian of Armenian heritage, just as Theophilus's mother had been. His mother had chosen Theodora carefully, apparently at an imperial bride show, though there is some doubt about this. Nevertheless, the bride show has captured the imagination of many, and there's an illustration of it up on the website. Certainly, one of the things which drew the Empress's attention to young Theodora was her family. Well-off and well-connected, her Armenian relatives were a natural fit for the administration, which, as you know, had been filled with Armenians since Leo, the Armenian, had taken charge. Theodora's uncle was Manuel, the general who may have died, saving Theophilus's life during the Battle of Anzin, and her brothers, Bardas and Patronus, were both fine soldiers. Theodora was therefore not isolated in the palace when her husband fell ill. She felt capable of taking an active role in government, and she intended to. The similarities with Irene are obvious. Both were widowed with young sons in a society which expected a male emperor to be in command. 
Like Irene, Theodora concluded that one way to secure her position would be to bring the iconophile camp onto her side. With this constituency singing her praises to the heavens, it would be far harder for her to be overthrown. This would also have the effect, as the return to iconoclasm did, of disassociating the regime from the ignominy of the sack of Amorium. So far, so good. But one point of comparison between the two women doesn't hold up. When Irene took action to restore the icons, she didn't feel in danger of discrediting her dynasty. Remember that Leo III and Constantine V had been hugely popular. They had brought victory and security. Whereas Michael of Amorium was not popular, and Theophilus had still been building his reputation when the great defeat struck. So Theodora feared that if she restored the icons, their memories would be damned, and thus their legitimacy called into question. She did not want to undermine her son's claim to the throne, even though she did want to press ahead with the change of policy. So things proceeded carefully. She relied heavily on two men to manage the restoration. One was Methodius, the learned monk who had been imprisoned for his supposed iconophile activities, who Theophilus had later invited to live in the palace. The other was the eunuch Theoctistus, and you'll remember him because he was the man who was snuck into the palace to hear Michael's confession as he sat on death row. He was the one who then passed on the message to the other conspirators that they better kill Leo before Michael ratted them out. The eunuch was capable and loyal to the Amorian dynasty. He had served Theophilus well and had been so trusted that he was put on the Regency Council to help Theodora. These two men spent a year preparing the ground for the change of policy. One of the first things they did was to spread the rumour that Theophilus had disowned iconoclasm on his deathbed. If that idea could marinate for twelve months, then perhaps the people would be more amenable to the change. They also had to sound out the capital's clergy to make sure they had the support they needed. They made their move in early 843. It was difficult to involve clergy who had signed up and supported iconoclasm, which nearly all sitting bishops had done. So the men who'd been exiled during Theophilus' reign were recalled to lend a hand. They joined a group of clerics and officials at Theoctistus's mansion in what has been called a holy local council. Their first task was to remove John the Grammarian as patriarch and elect Methodius in his place. Then it was agreed that the icons were to be restored. There was no need for a wider meeting because Irene had already held an ecumenical council to decide the issue. The local council simply announced that they would return to acknowledging her council as the seventh ecumenical meeting of the church, and Constantine V's Council of 754 would be confined to the dustbin of history. 
On the 10th of March, Methodius held a special nocturnal vigil. Then the next morning, he marched in procession to the Hagia Sophia. Monks and clergy from across the region were in attendance. Icons were brought out and restored to their former locations, or indeed placed in new ones as part of the reformed ritual. The new liturgy, which Methodius devised, was then performed. This included a new list of those who were to be praised and those who were to be condemned for their heresy. As per Theodora's wishes, Theophilus's name was simply not mentioned, a compromise that everyone seems to have accepted. This really was the end of an era, not just the era of iconoclasm, but sort of the end of the doctrinal disputes which have been a constant topic on this podcast. I mean, not really, the Byzantines still have plenty of religious dissension to come, but technically there are no more ecumenical councils. The accepted seven put an end to the major disputes over Arianism, Nestorianism, Monophysitism, and now Iconoclasm. Still today, in the Orthodox Church, the first Sunday of Lent is celebrated as the Sunday of Orthodoxy, remembering the restoration of the icons. Of course, in the written histories, this is not exactly the version of events we're given. In those, Theodora is a dedicated iconophile who keeps icons hidden in her room. Not only does she venerate them behind Theophilus's back, but she instructs her daughters to do likewise. This could be true. The problem is that just like the reports about Irene, the chroniclers have only one eye where this is concerned. Those who promoted iconoclasm are damned. Those who restored the icons had chafed for years before finally being set free. But common sense suggests something else. Both Theodora and Irene married men who were iconoclasts and seemed to have happily taken part in those regimes. The eunuch Theoctistus served ably under Theophilus's regime before helping to arrange the transition. It seems more likely that whatever their personal feelings about icons, they weren't about to give up their careers and social status to defend them. So on this podcast, I'm continuing with the consensus of modern historians that politics, rather than devotion, dictated the course of events. This helps explain why there was so little apparent opposition to the change of policy. Of course, John the Grammarian was not happy to be stripped of the patriarchy, and just as there were hardcore iconophiles who faced persecution, there were some bishops and priests who refused to toe the new line. But otherwise, there are no reported complaints from soldiers or officials, and the majority of the empire's clergy accepted the decision of the Holy Local Council. Of course, it was difficult for bishops to remain in place, since so many of them had cooperated or indeed sworn oaths to the iconoclast emperors. Methodius, therefore, deposed nearly all of the empire's prelates and began replacing them. 
This naturally caused various resentments. Eventually, the Patriarch agreed in a few cases to allow former bishops to resume their duties. As was the case with earlier church controversies, Methodius took a forgiving stance. As long as men confessed and cooperated, they could return to the fold. These conciliatory moves naturally angered the monks of the Studite monastery. They were dismayed that former iconoclasts were being rehabilitated, and once again refused to take communion with the patriarch. Interestingly, Theodora made no formal announcement to the outside world about this change. Michael and Theophilus had been keen to see if they could get some agreement with the Franks and the papacy over iconoclasm, but by keeping quiet, Theodora avoided any embarrassing rebukes while allowing the Pope and the Eastern Patriarchs to simply be satisfied with the news that iconoclasm was dead. Finally, the remains of Constantine V were removed from the imperial mausoleum. His bones burnt, his ashes scattered. No site would now be associated with his memory. It's possible that Irene was exhumed to take his place. And eventually, upon the chalk gate of the palace, a new icon was placed. A mosaic of Christ. Since I introduced iconoclasm back in episode 71, I feel like I've summed up the issues surrounding it several times, but there are still a number of things to unpick here as we bid it a final farewell. Just to finish off Theophilus's story, the histories which cover his reign are all written after the restoration of the icons, so his persecution of iconophiles are dialed up and his successes dialed down. As I mentioned two episodes ago, he was still well thought of enough not to be totally dismissed as a failure. His love of justice and things like that do get a mention. But generally, he is condemned as a heretic and not remembered fondly. Hopefully I've done something to redress that balance by leaning more on modern historians. Then I think it's worth dwelling a little longer on the connection between Irene and Theodora. When Irene opposed iconoclasm, she took a huge risk in a personal sense. She went up against a policy which the army believed had brought them success, and with the five sons of Constantine V waiting in the wings to replace her, the risk of failure was huge. Theodora, by contrast, was facing a discredited policy and a weak military. And perhaps even more importantly, Theodora had Irene's work to fall back on. Not only had Irene held an ecumenical council to create her version of orthodoxy, but she'd also inspired a dedicated following. Theodore of Studius and his ilk were committed to Irene's council. They formed an organised opposition to iconoclasm, the kind of opposition that doesn't seem to have existed before Irene. 
I talked about this at the time, but one of the great ironies of iconoclasm is that Irene's council claimed they were restoring the church to the way it had always been, when in fact they created an official cult of icons which didn't exist before. So Theodora did not have to work hard to explain her position to the clergy. She could simply announce that she would be restoring what Irene and Tarasius had pronounced back in 787. The lack of opposition to the restoration suggests that the iconoclasts were never as organised as their opponents. In part, this is because iconoclasts were going against the flow. Not everyone venerated icons, but special prayers and affection directed towards inanimate objects was common. Saints' relics, for example. So, to be an iconoclast, you had to be seriously committed to your beliefs. You had to argue that what was happening was wrong and should be stopped. That requires far more effort than stamping existing behaviour with a seal of approval. For the average clergyman of the empire, the desire to go with the flow seems to have been the prevailing mood. Loyalty to the sitting emperor and patriarch was always the smart move for your career, and second iconoclasm in particular seems to have had a fairly limited scope. At times it seems to have explicitly been targeted at the churches of the capital and no further. There was a a high-ranking deacon called Ignatius, whose letter collection survives in part. He begins his career as a protégé of Tarasius, Irene's patriarch, and then becomes a friend to Nicephorus, our historian and patriarch under Leo, when iconoclasm resumes. Instead of being exiled, Ignatius transitions to serving the new regime. It seems he may have been the man who penned the official version of the Civil War for Michael after Thomas's defeat. He certainly served as Archbishop of Nicaea during that time. When the icons are restored, Ignatius is exiled to a monastery, but continues to correspond with many highly placed men. In these letters, he expresses his regret for his iconoclast collaboration, and he sets to work on biographies of Theodore of Studius and Nicephorus, glorifying their iconophile heroism. Eventually, Ignatius is welcomed back into patriarchal circles. Though Ignatius is obviously a very well-connected example, it seems likely that many clergy followed similar trajectories. Their desire to maintain imperial favour mean they have to adapt their ideology as their career develops. Looking at these letters and others like them, historian Chris Wickham comments that Byzantium in 843 comes to seem like England in 1660 or East Germany in 1990, full of people trying to show how little they had compromised with a losing political system which in reality they had been largely happy with. So, one last time, what did it all mean? I think for us living today in 2016, the last earth-shattering world event was probably the First World War. Now, I know a lot's happened since then, but I think 
Dan Carlin, for example, makes a good case that the world which emerged in 1918 was very different to the one that went in four years earlier. For the Byzantines, the arrival of the Arabs was similarly shocking. The Heraclean dynasty survived long enough for people to wonder if perhaps this was all a temporary state of affairs. But by the fall of Justinian II, it had become clear that it wasn't. The period of anarchy which followed with the seven emperors and then the siege seemed like the end of the world. The system was breaking down. Things really were dramatic for the Romans, and so it shouldn't surprise us that a period of soul-searching followed which lasted a century and a half. In their excellent study of this period, John Haldon and Leslie Brubaker conclude that imperial iconoclasm was about far more than just a theological debate over images. It was a struggle to keep the state together. The realisation that the eastern provinces were really gone suddenly made these Thratikos of the Anatolikon a very powerful man. How can we count on his loyalty? How can we trust the population living in the east to continue paying their taxes when we can't really defend them anymore? How can we expect people to keep believing that God blesses the emperor when he so clearly favours the Arabs? A change in the official doctrine of state and church was part of a campaign to reassure and control people. Here is an explanation of the past. Here is a solution to our problems. Here is a question of loyalty. Will you sign up to this and prove you are trustworthy? This will keep everyone looking to the centre and perhaps give them a reason to keep going. To be or not to be. To take up arms against a sea of troubles. Irene used the discontented and disenfranchised to redraw the boundaries of this debate, but she was still trying to achieve the same ends. When Pliska came, it reinforced earlier arguments. When Amorium fell, it undermined them. Over time, what made iconoclasm less relevant was that time had passed and everyone was still standing. The Arabs haven't overrun us. We are better off. We are more populous. We are stronger. The fact that images became a key battleground is important, but obviously it's not the whole story. Men and women sought help from the icons because church and state were failing them. They turned to local protectors to find someone who would never desert them. To the imperial authorities, the fear was that the next step would be to look for local men to defend them too, and rob Constantinople of the resources which made the empire possible. Of course, representation of the holy was an important theological issue, and the fact that the Arabs considered it blasphemous was a direct challenge to Christian pretensions to godliness. But once the emperor became involved in the debate, then it became an issue of conformity and legitimacy and thus grew into a larger debate. The rewriting of the past by churchmen was probably not a cynical attempt at propaganda 
but instead a reflection of how the church understood its own world. Innovation was a dirty word. The ecumenical councils approved what was doctrinally right, and attempts to change that were heretical. So when Irene established a new orthodoxy, it was logical to look back and view Leo and Constantine as innovators, heretics, sinners. Men like Nicephorus and Theophanes had grown up reading the stories of martyrs and saints, men who confronted paganism and heretical belief and vanquished them. So Leo and Constantine were cast in this role, the work of the devil, which Christ had now overcome. This interpretation of the past reinforced the present. Now Theodora had restored orthodoxy. It is an ideology which explains how we got here and where we're going. It's a state of affairs which will keep us together as we move forward. Finally, way back in episode 71, I also made this point. Iconoclasm changed what it meant to be Roman. Iconoclasm is a hateful heresy. The icons are a gift from God to aid our worship. To follow this orthodoxy makes you one of God's chosen people who will survive the storms and be rewarded in the afterlife. That definition of Byzantine Christianity was increasingly alien to those living outside the empire's boundaries. In East and West, what was left of Roman identity now felt further alienated by this new formulation. Iconoclasm was a Byzantine identity crisis. Its results didn't make much sense to someone living in the Caliphate or in the realm of the Franks. As the Roman Empire slowly recovers its strength over the next couple of centuries, it will no longer be recognisable to its neighbours as such. Iconoclasm was not the sole cause of this, but it was an important part of defining the Byzantines as a separate people from those they once thought of as their own. That's the end of Iconoclasm in the narrative. If you have questions about it, then send them in and I can talk about it all again at the end of the century. As I said, I've updated the map with all the new military units and I've changed the font size slightly to indicate the relative size of each establishment. Also, for any podcasters listening, if you'd like someone to help edit your shows, then history podcast fan Andrew Fancook is available to help. Get in contact with him to see if he could help you at andrew at pfanknkuche.com or at f-u-n-p-k-a-c-e on Twitter or check out the post I put in the History Podcast's Facebook page where Andrew himself is a member. Next time, we turn to Theophilus's son Michael, the family and friends who helped him govern and how he got his unfortunate nickname. Michael III, the Drunkard. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.